We commenced a new series uh, of Sunday teaching two weeks ago, and it's entitled, as you can see on the screen, Living Church. And on that occasion two weeks ago, I started uh, my talk by referring to a church which is found in the book of Revelation, the church in a city or a town called Sardis. And to this church, the all-seeing, all-knowing Jesus Christ says, I know your deeds, and you have a reputation for being alive, but are dead. And as I said on that occasion a couple of weeks ago, reputation is about how other people see us. But it's not the most important thing. The most important thing is not our reputation as other people see us. The most important thing is how God sees us. And it's possible to have a great reputation as a church. And Sardis, this ancient church, this first century church, was a church that had an amazing reputation. It was the in place to be. It was probably the best church in town. But Jesus had an altogether different opinion on that church. It was John Wimber, the founder of the Vineyard Movement of Churches, who used to say to Christians to live their lives before an audience of one. I think that's great advice, and obviously he was speaking about God when he was speaking of an audience of one. You know, it's only God's evaluation. It's the only one that counts. And I think that our reputation as Tamworth Elim Church in Tamworth is a pretty good we have a pretty good reputation here. Uh, many people in the town see our church as quite a vibrant church, a church with a social conscience, a church with a significant community impact. And that's great. And I don't have a problem with that. In fact, I would rather people think well of us than think poorly of us. But it's not the most important assessment. It's not what people say about us is the important thing. It's what God says. So what does a living or an alive church look like? And from our study a couple of weeks ago in Acts chapter 2, uh, we found there a snapshot of the early church in Jerusalem shortly after the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was given. And we said that this living church was a learning church, it was a caring church, it was a worshipping church, and also an evangelizing church. And Dan last week spoke in considerably more detail on uh, being a worshipping church. And it was a great talk that Dan gave us, as all of his talks are great. And if you missed out on it, I do encourage you, go onto our website, go onto the podcast and listen to it. But today I want to return to that phrase in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, which says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. Now, the, the Greek word fellowship, the New Testament was written in the Greek, the word is koinonia, meaning having things in common. And that was certainly true of this wonderful church in Jerusalem in the first century, that they shared their lives very, very deeply and profoundly. And Luke goes on to write in, uh, in Acts chapter 2 about this church, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. And the depth of love and care that these early Christians had for each other was quite striking. It was not some um, uh, superficial adherence to a church. 
They didn't have a, a, a nonchalant, take it or leave it attitude to church. But being a part of this church had a significant impact on their lives and had a significant impact actually upon the community as well, those outside the church, as Jesus said it would. Do you remember when Jesus said, uh, recorded for us in John chapter 13, he said, a new commandment I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, you must love one another. By this, by this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love one to another. And true Christian love, caring, sacrificial love, is always an attractive thing. It's always an appealing thing. It's not only wonderful to be a part of a church like that, but it's something that those out in the community, those in the town, will look in and say that's very, very attractive and appealing. And the Bible calls this shared experience koinonia, fellowship. And as I said a couple of weeks ago, the original meaning uh, for this has actually sort of lost a little bit of its uh, original meaning, lost a little bit of its impact because fellowship these days to many people is a little bit of socializing where you've got food and fun. Uh, why don't we meet up after church for a bit of fellowship? Let's grab a, a tea or coffee and a biscuit or uh, come over for a, a barbecue, obviously not on this weather, um, and have a bit of fellowship. The question, where do you fellowship, means what church do you attend? But fellowship in biblical terms meant far more than just turning up a church or coming over for a barbecue. It was experiencing life together. And Rick Warren, in his excellent book, uh, which was a New York Times bestseller, The uh, Purpose Driven Life, uh, says this. Authentic fellowship is not superficial, surface-level surface chit-chat. It is genuine heart-to-heart, -heart, sometimes gut-level sharing. It happens when people get honest about who they are and what is happening in their lives. They share their hurts, reveal their feelings, confess their failures, disclose their doubts, admit their fears, acknowledge their weaknesses, and ask for help and prayer. That sounds like a living church to me, yeah? He continues. He says, authenticity is the exact opposite of what you find in some churches. Instead of an atmosphere of honesty and humility that is pretending, role-playing, politicking, and superficial politeness, but shallow conversation. People wear masks, keep their guard up, and act as if everything is rosy in their lives. These attitudes are the death of real fellowship. I think he is rather eloquently describing there the difference between a living church and a dead church. A living church is a church where its congregation, its members, have a deep sense of belonging to other members, where they are actively looking out for one another, where they are glad to share in the joys of each other and the sorrows of each other, where there is honesty, where members of the church are become willing to become vulnerable with each other, where there's trust and kindness, where people are not only looking out for their own interests, but they're also looking out for the interests of others. And the truth of the matter is, that we're all created for community, we are fashioned for fellowship and formed for family. And that's the way that God has made us. 
And you see, that, I believe, is what society at large is yearning for, is looking for, but often doesn't find. It's what we have. Biblical Christianity knows nothing at all of isolated Christians detached from others. Biblical Christianity isn't just about being able to agree on a set of beliefs. Now, some people think this, you know, that, uh, yes, you know, what is all important is that we have to agree on what we believe. Very important, yes, whether it's the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, or the Elim foundational beliefs, it matters not. But that is not the only or sometimes the most important thing. There is a sense of belonging. You see, the New Testament speaks on belonging community. On 50 occasions, we have in the New Testament the one another or each other sayings. Love one another, accept one another, bear one another's burdens, confess your sins to one another, forgive one another, encourage one another, be at peace with one another, serve one another, instruct one another, be kind and compassionate to one another, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ and so many others. How are we supposed to obey those commands if we live in isolation from other Christians? And I would even dare suggest to you that what we have, and even though it's great, on a Sunday morning is not enough to fulfill those commands of the one another's of the New Testament. Let's look again at those verses. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Now, don't get me wrong here. I love Sunday mornings. I love being in this place. I love being with the wider church. I love the, the, the singing and the worship. I love having the children and the young people with us. I love the teaching, certainly when it's done, less, less, less so when it's me and that's, uh, that's not some false humility on my part either. But Sunday mornings are not designed for the intimacy of relationships. You know, they're too busy. You know, it's been a busy morning. The other thing, we're all sat in rows. You know, how on earth are you supposed to have fellowship with the person who's in front of you or behind you? It's not easy. It's not meant for those intimate relationships, really. And things on a Sunday morning, as wonderful as they are, and I wouldn't give them up for the world, are much more superficial. It's good morning, God bless you, great to see you. How are things? See you next week, kind of conversation. And that's why we encourage you to join in with midweek life groups. You know, life groups, we have the opportunity to share at a deeper level, to pray for others and to be prayed for, to use spiritual gifts and to be blessed by them, to share your joys and to share your sorrows, and to stand with others, to open the scriptures together and learn through discussion and the application of the scriptures in our lives today. You see, once our relationship with God is personal, it's never meant to be private. And every Christian is connected to every other Christian. In Romans 12 verse 5, in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. And Paul writes in Ephesians uh, chapter 1, verse 5, New Living Translation, 
God decided to advance, in, in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So God didn't need a family. He wanted a family, and he created you and he created me to be a part of that family. And the invitation to this family is universal, but there is one condition, and the condition is faith in Jesus. And John says in his gospel, to all who believed in him, that's Jesus, and accepted him, he gave the right to become the children of God. And the moment that we received God as our father, we get the added benefit and blessing of having an extended family, a whole new family of brothers and sisters. Now, our families on earth are very, very important to us. They're wonderful gifts from God. But our families on earth are only temporary and fragile, often broken by divorce or distance or dementia or death. But on the other hand, our spiritual family, our relationship to believers will continue throughout all of eternity. And since that is the case, I think we better learn to get on with each other. Be nice to me. I might be your next door neighbor in heaven. What a thought. As long as I don't sing, Bev. Is that what you said? Right, okay. <laughs> you see, the living church is where its members don't merely believe certain things, but they belong. It's really interesting. I was at home on Friday, and I was uh, preparing this talk, and a leaflet uh, dropped through the door, advertising membership of a local gym, no joining fee to sweat over, um, etc., etc. Um, the latest top-notch kit, no contract to tie you down, membership £16.99 a month. And then half an hour later, an identical leaflet was, uh, was also put through the door. And I thought to myself, they're obviously not aware of the amazing physical shape that I'm in. <laughs> uh, and, you know, that I have a physique to die for. And didn't need to be a part of it. Hey, come on, you know, sort of, don't laugh so loudly. That wasn't meant to be funny. Um, my point. That's the way very often that membership is viewed in society. Stores offer discounts to members. No strings attached to tie you down. But for the Apostle Paul, being a member of the church meant something quite different to that. For Paul, being a Christian meant being a vital organ of a living body, an indispensable, interconnected part of the body of Christ. You see, the church is not a building, it is a body. It is an organism, not a an organization. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12 that the human body has many parts, but the many parts make up the one whole body. So it is with the body of Christ. And then I'm sure many of you know that wonderful passage. Paul goes on to say that the foot cannot say to the hand, I'm not part of the body because I'm not a hand, and the ear cannot say to the eye, I'm not part of the body because I'm not a, an eye, which is ridiculous, he says. All parts are important. And then in verse 27, all of you together are Christ's body and each of you is a part of it. You see, the, the organs of a body are created to fulfill a purpose. 
And to fulfill the purpose, they need to be connected to each other part of the body. And it's the same with the body of Christ, that we are created for a purpose, that we have a role to play. Every single person in this room today who is a Christian has a role to play in the body of Christ. And that, that, that role is discovered, it's developed, and it's deployed in the local church and outside the local church. I love what Eugene Peterson in the message says uh, for this verse, uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 5. He says, each of us finds our meaning and function as a part of, the, of his body. But as a chopped off finger or a cut off toe, we wouldn't amount to much, would we? Well, of course not. An organ severed from the body will shrivel and die. It can't exist on its own. And similarly, the, the illustration is here that the spiritual life of a Christian, it's not going to do much if it is disconnected from the lifeblood of the local church. It will eventually cease. Again, to quote uh, Rick Warren, he says, the person who says, I don't need the church, is either arrogant or ignorant. That's something to discuss in your life groups this week. Several reasons that we are called by God to belong to each other. I, I've put them as an ABC, so maybe it will help us uh, remember them. First of all, an anti antidote to self-centeredness. You see, God's desire for our lives as Christians is that we don't just focus on ourselves. And the, the local church is a place where we get to practice unselfish, sacrificial love. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, 26, if one part suffers, all the parts suffer with it. And if one part is honoured, all the parts are glad. Now, I don't know if you've ever had a really, really uh, severe headache, perhaps a migraine. I've had one or two in the, in the past. And the pain doesn't only affect the head. That when you get a migraine, it affects everything, the whole body. You know, it affects my stomach because I've got no desire to eat. It affects my eyes because I don't want to watch television, even if rugby is on. It affects my feet because I don't want to go out for a run. I don't even want to go out for a walk. It affects my hands. I'm not bothered about writing an email or even making a cup of coffee. And if one part suffers, all the parts suffer with it. And that's equally true for the church. If one part suffers... Through illness or accident or bereavement, we're all affected. And similarly, we rejoice with one another in the good times. And that's something which I must say is, is so, so evident within this church family. B, another reason to belong, because it builds spiritual muscle. I don't believe that we will ever grow into spiritual maturity by just attending a Sunday morning service or being a passive spectator. Paul writes in Ephesians 4.16, from him, that's from Christ, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as what? As each part does its work. And the metaphor of a body is something that Paul uses a lot in his writings to the various New Testament churches. And if our physical bodies are out of action for some reason, maybe you break a bone, maybe you're in plaster cast for, a, for some time, what, what tends to happen is that our muscles atrophy. They grow weaker. 
through lack of use. And the same is to be said in our spiritual lives as well. That we grow into maturity and we build spiritual muscle um, by being active members of a local church. You see, as I mentioned a few moments ago, the Bible tells us that we are to love one another, encourage one another, forgive one another, bear one another's burdens. Now, I know, I know I'm stating the obvious here, but we can't be obedient to all of those commands unless we belong to one another. You know, it's much easier to do a Bible study on forgiveness than it is to forgive someone who's just stood on your toes. Yeah? It's much easier to talk about encouraging fellow believers than it is to actually encourage someone who you might think is a little bit arrogant anyway and doesn't need to have his ego further inflated by your encouragement. Are you with me? It's easier to be holy when no one else is around you to frustrate you or annoy you. Not that any of you would ever do that because you're all quite, quite perfect, sort of. It's easy to think that you mature if there's no one to challenge us. You see, you might have noticed this. You might not have. <clears throat> Some people are just plain awkward. They are. And not all of them are quite as perfect as you are. And not all of them see the world exactly as you see it. They have different views on politics and the NHS and Brexit and Book of Revelation and the way they bring up their kids and personal hygiene and a whole host of other things. You see, I don't want to sound heretical here, but we need far more than the Bible and prayer to grow into spiritual maturity. We need other believers as well. And uh, I, I've known some uh, Christians over the years who, who think that they can become mature, fully rounded Christians through tuning in to some American mega church via the God channel or internet instead of being an active member of a local church. I've come across people who believe that. Now, don't get me wrong here. Probably what they're listening to, well, a lot of the time, not always, but a lot of the time, they probably hear talented, interesting speakers, some amazing testimonies. They enjoy wonderful choreographed worship with magnificent musicians. From the comfort of their lounge, they don't suffer the frustration of having someone six foot eleven standing in front of them at church. They don't have the frustration of the room temperature being too hot or too cold. They don't have the hassle of needing to find a parking space on a Sunday morning, and they can remain in their PJs while drinking good coffee and eating bacon sandwiches. <laughs> so why go to all the effort to belong to a local church? <laughs> yeah, that wasn't the point of what I was getting at there, guys. Yeah, yeah. You let, let me finish. You're, you're, you're missing it. I think I made that sound too, too inviting, <laughs> too appetizing. <laughs> why? Go to all the effort of being a part of a local church when the only effort required is to pick up a remote uh, control. And the answer to that, really, is what we're talking about this morning, is that growing into maturity involves belonging to and being mutually responsible for and accountable to other Christians, imperfect people. 
inadequate people, people like you and me, people that have rough edges, people that make mistakes, people that get it wrong. But nevertheless, there are people who have a heart for journeying with God. You see, in the environment of the local church, you gain from them and they gain from you. There's a mutuality, there's a giving and receiving, there is a dependency on each other as Christians. It means entering into and sharing their pain. It means they doing the same for you. Being there when perhaps circumstances crush us to the point when our faith wavers. And if you've never experienced that, then I will tell you that there will come a day when you will experience that. And it's at that time that you will need believing friends the most to stand with you, to pray with you, to pray for you when you yourself have nothing left in the tank. Another reason to belong, it constrains backsliding. Now, none of us is immune to temptation or making those decisions which are out of, outside of God's best for our lives. And uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. And let's be honest, yeah, I think it's a good thing to do in church. It's not easy to live a God-honoring life, a Jesus-centered life in this world. But we knew that before we signed up. Because that is exactly what Jesus said. He spoke of the difficulties that followers would experience in this world. And actually, if you read the New Testament, particularly the Gospel of Luke, he discouraged some of them from following him because they had not yet evaluated the cost of doing so. And the pressures as Christians are internal and external. Internally, we're all frail human beings, and we are hardwired with certain desires and inclinations to do the wrong thing and to make bad, bad choices. Externally, we face pressures because we are Christians, in a society which is becoming more and more anti-Christian. And life can sometimes be tough. And we are weak and we feel all alone. And at those times, it is far better when we are together than isolated on our own. There are some verses in Ecclesiastes which are often used in wedding services about a cord of three strands not being easily broken and so on which are spiritualized a little bit and taken out of context and used in wedding services. I hope you don't mind me saying that, but they are. But the application of these verses extends beyond a wedding application for a husband and wife. I'll read them to you. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 to 12. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls or has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. So what's being said there is pity the one who falls down without anyone there to pick him up. Pity the isolated person uh, who is overpowered and is unable to help himself against an enemy. And the... There is benefit in numbers. That's what we're being told here. Two is better than one. Three is better than two. And if you're experiencing turmoil and trouble and you're being overpowered by temptation or overwhelmed by circumstances, 
it's far better not to be isolated from others. It's helpful to have others around, uh, to be there, to pick us up, to brush us down, to set us on our way again when we fall. And that's why it's so important. And that's why a living church is a church where its members see fellowship in this light. It's not just a, a superficial thing of turning up on a Sunday and then see you next week. It's much deeper than that. Much, much deeper than that. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 6, Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back on the right path. Underline those words, gently and, hu and, and humbly. In other words, you don't do this like a bull in a china shop, which sometimes I've seen. You know, I'm, oh, they're... they're they're going away, I'm going to sort them out, I'm going to put them right. And all that that is is put the other person on a kind of spiritual, spiritually, a spiritual pedestal then. It's not about that. We're not acting superior here or critical. It's for the, the desire just to help that brother or sister back into a good place. And be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. Share each other's burdens, and this, in this way, obey the law of Christ. I can say to you that some of my greatest regrets and sorrows in ministry have been when I have failed to help another person back onto the right path. And I can look at some marriages, uh, marriages which have ended in divorce, when the outcome might have been reconciliation if the couple had not detached themselves from regular fellowship. That's a harsh thing to say, but it's true. God asked Cain where his brother Abel was. And Cain's reply, you remember it well, in Genesis, am I my brother's keeper? Well, <laughs> you mentioned it, Cain, uh, yes, you are. That's not actually what God said to him. God could have said that to him, but God had other bigger issues to deal with in his life than the fact that he just murdered his brother, so that probably took precedence over his bad theology. Am I my brother's keeper? Are we today our brothers and sisters' keepers? You bet we are. You bet we are. We are called and commanded to be involved in the lives of others. And I would say to you this morning, very, very down-to-earth, very practically this, if you are aware of others who are wavering in their faith or about to press some self-destruct button that would potentially cause hurt to themselves and to others, then because you love them and because you are committed to their spiritual welfare and because you are Christ's ambassadors, you, with God's help and strength and wisdom, will go and make a difference. You will go and stop them hurting themselves even if it means a difficult conversation. I love these words of James. James chapter 5, verse 19 in the message. If you know people who have wandered off from God's truth, don't write them off. Go after them. Get them back. And by the way, that's not just the job of the pastor, okay? Because sometimes the, the, the words and care from a close friend can be far more influential than any pastor. It's the time.
Time's nearly gone. I'm going to come into land. And I need to ask you a couple of questions. If I asked you this morning, do you, to, do you belong to this church family? Now, my guess is that the vast majority of you here this morning would say, yes, of course we do. We belong to this. Unless, of course, you are visiting here this morning and this is your first occasion, or maybe you've been coming only recently and you're not really sure whether this is the church that you want to settle in. But if your answer is yes, then I'd like to ask you another question. And that is, in which way do you belong to Tamworth Elim? You see, there are different levels of fellowship. There's a fellowship of sharing. Essentially, this is the kind of fellowship that you stop someone and get to know their name, to find out a little bit about them, their families, what is going on in their lives. It's a very, I suppose, superficial level of fellowship. Then there's the fellowship of studying the scriptures together. And I know that many of you enjoy this level of fellowship together in life groups in the week. It's a great thing to do that we open up our lives together, that we share of our lives, we share the scriptures, we apply the scriptures to our lives. It's a learning community. Then there's a fellowship of serving. And I know that many of you do this. It is serving in God's work together. Sometimes it's with the children or with the youth work or with food bank or the winter night shelter or with prime time or one of the other ministries. Being a part of a team with a common vision and objective strengthens those bonds of fellowship, deepens fellowship. And then there's the fellowship of suffering where we enter into each other's pain and grief and carry one another's burdens, which again is a very, very deep, deep form of fellowship. So coming back to that question, in which way do you belong to Tamworth Elim? What is that level of fellowship for you? And this is something for you to answer. Sorry if these questions sound a bit tough. I said this a couple of weeks ago. But sometimes we need to ask tough questions. Because you see, my desire, my desire is that we be all that God has called us to be. That's my heart. And therefore, I don't mind on occasions asking hard questions. I want us to be a living church in God's eyes, not, not a dead church or a church with a reputation for being alive. Yeah? And these questions this morning are really, really important. You know, therefore, maybe we need to ask ourselves, am I a spectator or am I committed and involved in church's ministry? Am I a consumer or my contributor to the life, life and health of this church? Hard questions. I'm sure questions that we will discuss through the week and we will further reflect upon. But in a sense, the person next to you can't answer that one for you. Just a challenge this morning. As I challenge yourself, I challenge me too. Okay, we're going to finish by talking about nine, well, not talking, I'm just going to put on screen nine characteristics of true biblical fellowship, nine marks, if you like, of a living church. And see how we do with these, and I'll finish with this. Firstly, we will share our true feelings with others, which is authenticity. Secondly, we will encourage each other, which is mutuality. 
Thirdly, we will support each other, which is sympathy. Fourthly, we will forgive each other, which is mercy. Fifthly, we will speak the truth in love, which is honesty. Sixthly, we will admit, admit our weaknesses, which is vulnerability. Therefore, we will allow the guard to drop on times. That, you know, what people see is the real us, and we will see the real them. Seventh, that we will respect our differences, which is courtesy. Eighth, that we will not gossip of each other, which is confidentiality. And nine, we will make meeting with others our priority, which is frequency. Let's pray together.